Welcome to Shoulder Charge. This week we'll be talking all things championship. I'll also be telling you which side I think are in real danger of going down. And it's not London or whole KR. We've got all that and more on Shoulder Charge. Before we get into what happened last night in Super League, I thought we'd kick things off by discussing the battle for promotion in the championship. Because like Super League, it's really tight around the playoffs at the moment. And apart from Toronto, it was steaming ahead, it's too close to call. And the question is, who on earth can stop them? And just before I delve deeper into that, I'd just like to update you on the recent developments in the championship. This week saw news that the playoff final may be played at the home team's ground. And since then, the RFL have confirmed that the final will be played at the home ground of the top place side. And this apparently was always going to be the case, whoever got to the final. But as far as the public were concerned, nothing was ever communicated because clubs could potentially have travelled to Toronto in the in the playoffs two to three times in the space of a few weeks. And I personally think that all one-off games should be played at a neutral ground, to be honest. They're missing out on a huge opportunity marketing-wise, and I've, I've said it before, the RFL and Rugby League in general gets caught up with big projects and they sometimes forget to do the basics right. And it's like that old adage, you don't run before you can walk. And my understanding is, tickets are already being sold for the Super League Grand Final, yet this week in the Championship there's been confusion over where it will actually be played. So they're missing out on a lot of opportunities here. And... It's our understanding that it was already decided before the season that it'd be played at the top-placed home ground. It was never actually said in public that that's, that were the case, and this has sort of fueled the speculation over where will it be played, etc. And by not actually coming out and saying where it was going to be played, it sort of opened it up for people to change their minds throughout the season. To me, it just looks a bit amateurish because why they would want to play it at the home ground of the top player side is beyond me, to be honest. Yeah, they should have an advantage in the playoffs, but they're already in the semi-finals of that, so that there's, that's their advantage. All the big games should be played at a neutral ground, especially for the sides who are competing to win those games because they want to prove they're a big side. They want to prove they're good in big games. But how can they do that if it's being played at the, their own ground? You know, if they want to be considered a big side, they've got to play in the big atmosphere, under the pressure. If they want to be prepared for Super League, that's that's the perfect opportunity. And it's great for marketing and whatnot. But with the RFL, it seems nothing is ever done in the right way. Anyway, let's get back onto the main discussion. Can anyone stop Toronto? They've lost just once this season to Toulouse, but Toronto has since beat them twice. And on Saturday, they faced Featherstone. And it's another indicator as to who will be the main challenger to Toronto. Featherstone are currently joint third on 26 points. As it stands, the championship is as tight as Super League. About the top seven have a chance of getting in the top five. 
Toronto will finish top, there's no doubt about that. They've been the better side by some margin. They're ten points clear with just seven games left. But being top doesn't just get you promoted. It doesn't even get you an automatic spot in the final. So it's all up for grabs. And I've been looking at this year compared to last. Because of course, Toronto were the top team by a big margin last year. And they still lost to London Broncos in the million pound game. Whilst they were comfortably first last year, the teams below them were better challengers than they are this year, in my opinion. For example, if you look at the points scored, last year, out of the top five teams below Toronto, four had an average of 35 or more points scored in every game. And London and Toulouse actually had more points scored on average each game than Toronto did. Toronto still had the best defence by some margin, but in terms of attacking, London and Toulouse had the upper hand. And a couple of others had just as good an attack as Toronto did last year. So it wasn't just down to that look on the day. London knew they could score more points than Toronto. This year, nobody in the top seven below Toronto has had over 29 points scored on average each game. And yet Toronto have kept up their high scoring reputation. They've scored over 36 points on average this year in each game. This is partly down to the teams below 7th place, picking up more points than they did last year. So, the playoff sides are faring less well against the, the lower sides than they did last year. And it makes promotion for Toronto slightly easier than it was last year. But, they still got to deliver the business in the playoffs. And in the playoffs, by the way, Toronto automatically get put in the semi-finals. And if they win, they'll be in the final. But if they lose in that semi-final, they've then got another shot at getting in the grand final by being placed into this preliminary final, where if they win, they'll be in the grand final. So they've got two shots at it. And seeing as they've been great over the season, maybe giving them an extra chance will prove to their advantage because it minimises the risk of a shot result happening. And I've been looking at who might have the best chance of getting in that grand final and rivaling Toronto and maybe beating them in that grand final. Because in the playoffs, the top sides will play each other. If you forget Toronto, the side who has third the best against the playoff contenders is Featherstone. They've played the sides second to seventh ten times. They've won six and they've lost four. And the reason I'm going to seventh is because they could all be playing in the playoffs, basically. Halifax in eight for too far away now. So Featherstone have got a good record against playoff contenders. Toulouse have also won six, but they've also lost five against playoff contenders. So again, there's no real contender you can say is a given to be in that playoff final against Toronto, presuming they're going to be there. I spoke last week about how good York were. They've edged into second now. They've gone two points clear. York, apart from Toronto, have lost the least amount of games. But here's where I worry for them. It's all good and well beating the sides lower down in the table, but you've got to show you can beat the top seven if you want to be in that grand final this year because that's who they're going to play. And all of their six defeats this year, they've come against them top, place, them top seven place sides. They've lost to Toronto, they've lost to Featherstone, they've lost to Toulouse. 
they've lost home and away to Toulouse actually, and they've also lost away and at Summer Bash to Featherstone. They've lost to Sheffield, so I worry they may not have what it takes in them big games. They could prove me wrong. They've still got to play Toronto, Lee, Bradford and Featherstone. But it'll be tough because the record's not good. And also, Lee, I worry for them. They've lost once to all the teams currently in the top seven. And the good thing for Toronto is all the top seven sides, they're of similar quality and they've lost to several playoff rivals. And nobody apart from Toulouse has actually beat Toronto. Nobody's even come close, to be honest. York are the only side who haven't scored a point against Toronto this year, so I worry for them even more. And apart from the Toulouse win, no team has actually scored more than 16 points against Toronto this year. And that's about two tries lower than the actual average over the season. So I'm sorry to say it, but it's looking like a Toronto walkover, to be honest. I don't have anything against Toronto, but because, you know, they've got big crowds, they'll probably grow the sport. But I just think a York, a Sheffield, a Featherstone, a Bradford, it'd be a great story if they were to go up this year. Anyway, on to last night's action. Hull FC emerged victorious, beating London 35 points to 22. Let's start with the first half. It was a rip-roaring start for Hull. They scored four converted tries within 19 minutes. They were skillful, they were pacey. London simply couldn't cope with Hull's attacks and Danny Ward opted to put Kieran Dixon at full-back, which I thought backfired, to be honest, because he was at fault for the first try within minutes. It was a miscommunication with Reese Williams, who were looking like he were going to catch it, but then overcame Kieran Dixon sprinting over and off-balanced him and the ball dropped and Hull FC picked it up and ran it over the try line. And I thought Dixon was pretty much wasted at fullback, to be honest. You know, he's, he's one of the paciest players in Super League and for me it should be on them wings. Also, Jordan Abdul was left out and when he wasn't on the field, his kicks were really missed. But Danny Ward saw sense and brought him on later. And after the game, Danny Ward admitted he probably got his selection wrong. But it took nothing away from Hull FC in that first half because they were mesmerising. They were unstoppable. The black shirts of Hull, they were just easing through the London defence. They barely got a touch on the opponent's shirt, never mind a tackle. You didn't really see much of London's defence until the 25th minute when they finally prevented a player over the try line by holding them up. In the first 40 minutes, when London went forward, the Hull FC defence would just watch and they'd wait for the ball to be passed to the supplementary runners and then they went in for the tackle. In comparison, London were guilty of focusing on the ball-carrying player too much and that were causing them to fall for the Hull dummies and it made it very easy for Hull to score tries. And the half-time stats, they showed the dominance... London had completed just 9 out of 10 sets and they'd made just 290 metres compared to Hull's 869. The score at halfway was 34-0. It was a real dominant performance and it was a statement that showed that on the day, Hull FC can give St Helens a real run for the money. But in the second half, from Hull's point of view, it was so disappointing. 
they went from amazing to abysmal. But the credit goes to London because they've only won twice on the road this year and they give it a real go. They scored four and answered tries. If you discount Mark's needs drop goal, it was great to see how London, after being torn apart, were resilient and they didn't lose any belief and it allowed them to put 22 points on the scoreboard. But it's becoming a regular occurrence for London now. Last week's game against Warrington was the same. At half-time, they were 36-0 down. The game was out of the reach before the half-time hooter had even blown. But again, in the second half, they didn't give up. And it's a refreshing attitude to have. So real credit has to go to Danny Ward for instilling that on the side. Last week, in the second half, they kept Warrington scoreless. They scored a try of their own. So they're showing all the signs of a solid Super League side. But they're being let down by their calamitous starts to games. Up next for them is St Helens. So it's not going to get easy for them. But the coach knows what to do. How to rectify his size problems. But maybe the same can't be said for Lee Radford. It was an 80 minutes that summed up the whole season to be honest. They was absolutely on fire for periods. But overall it was also disappointing. One of the whole players said after the game they put the cue back on the rack. And I tend to agree with him. They just sort of didn't look like they were up for the second half. It seemed as if it were just job done, put your feet up time. It summed it all up for me when London attempted to convert the third try. Before the ball had even been kicked over, the whole FC players were walking back. And according to the rules, that should be a retake. You know, they've already walked off the goal line before it's even gone over so it should have been a retake but the referees must have missed it and to me it just wasn't acceptable it's smacked of laziness it's not the right attitude of a side who should have a genuine chance of getting to the grand final and potentially lifting the grand final and the challenge cup final as well because they're in the semis of that looking at the stats i find it astonishing and the third place side has got minus points difference. It's remarkable. And that just pinpoints how polarising their performances have been this year. Even Salford, who are in danger of being relegated, have a positive points difference. They've conceded almost double the amount of points that Saints have. And there are just a handful of games left now. I don't think it's going to change for Hull because it's been like this for the whole season. Tonight with a chance to show consistency and position themselves as a genuine contender. And I'm afraid to say, they bottled it. It was another win for Leeds again last weekend. They've been slowly improving under Richard Agar. Two weeks ago, it was the first time Rhinos had scored over 30 points, which came against Catalans since April 19. Not only that, the defence has been a real highlight and they showed that last week. They was under pressure for a huge part of the game. There were so many repeat Castleford sets and Rhinos were forced into making goal line dropouts. In particular, when Corey Aston were pulled back just inches from the try line, it was a great effort from the Leeds defence. They withheld lots of pressure, but they didn't really play against one of the most informed Castleford sides. But it was still a big feat because it was the first win at the Mendehose Jungle since 2015. The next few will be crucial for Leeds because they've got Hull KR, Hull FC and Huddersfield up next. So it's two relegation rivals and 
the very inconsistent Hull FC up next. Under Richard Agar, Leeds have won four, lost three. So, it's not really anything to boast about, to be honest. But, that kind of form across the season this year, it would position themselves on a par with Wigan, Hull FC and Catalans. And, the losses under Richard Agar, they've come under St Helens, Wigan and Castleford. They're beating the sides around them and they're losing to the top sides in Super League. And whilst Leeds are not as attacking as they was under David Ferner, they're certainly more solid defensively. They've conceded seven points less on average every game. The introduction of the new signings, including Rob Louie, have given them an extra edge going forward. And in the last three games, they've scored more compared to the previous games under Richard Agar. The players seem to be playing for him, and they seem to be putting in more effort. And Leeds as a squad, they rank highly in Super League for things such as meters made and tackle boss. So there's a good side there. But out of all Super League side, they've also made the second most errors. So it tells me individual players are making individual mistakes. And it couldn't have helped with all that's been going on this year. But they're slowly climbing up the table now and they're easing the mistakes and the errors out of the performances. They're more tight in defence. They're starting to put more points on the board. But I think the joy is still out on Richard Agar. I think Leeds should hang fire on his appointment and deciding on his future. Because they may as well see how the season plays out. Who knows what the final table will look like. Maybe Leeds will slip back into it. Maybe they'll even get relegated. I don't think they will, but it's a possibility. And if they make that appointment, what are they going to do if it all goes haywire? They are looking good to survive relegation because they're beating the sides around them. And they face Hull KR tonight and it'll be a tough test because they'll want to right the wrongs of last week. They conceded 52 points against Wigan. Some were even tipping a surprise win for Hull KR and I thought they might have a good chance to be honest. But I was shocked at how easy it was for Wigan because I was watching the highlights on the Super League show and it just looked like it was a lacklustre performance from Hull KR and they barely got their hands on the Wigan forwards and it was really not what you'd come to expect from a Tony Smith side. Not so long ago, Wigan only just edged the win with a last gasp drop goal. And Hull KR have done quite well against the top Super League sides, so I thought, you know, they're looking good. They beat Warrington, they beat local rivals Hull FC, but again, another side that's so inconsistent. In all of the 21 Super League games this year, they've not won more than one game on the bounce. The next two, Leeds, Huddersfield, they're tough test, but they're winnable. And if they produce what they did against Wigan, they've got no chance. They've got to be careful now, because while 7th and below could arguably relegate, it could end up being a battle between Hull KR and London, because Leeds are having a mini-resurgence, Huddersfield are really convincing against Salford, London lost again, despite showing good signs, and if they get nothing from the next two, the gap might just start to emerge, and Hull KR under Tony Smith have been tighter defensively, but they slipped back into the hold habits against Wigan, Perhaps it was a one-off, but what's for sure, the relegation scrap is getting tasty. Staying on relegation, one team I'm worrying for the moment, more than everybody else, is Wakefield. I've talked about the inconsistencies of many Super League sides such as Salford, Huddersfield, Hull KR, Hull FC, 
But you can't say that about Wakefield. They're just consistently awful. They've had just one win in the last seven Super League games. And if you go back further, it's just two wins in nine. I'm looking at the losses, and they're coming against relegation rivals. Teams that are beating them, London, Leeds, Salford. The last game, they lost 44-10 against Catalans. And this was a dragon side that could have suffered the sixth straight defeat. But Catalans won with ease. I'm looking at the game, and it just looked half-hearted. The stats showed it. Joe Arundel was the only Wakefield player who made over 100 metres. And they arguably have got the toughest test coming up. They face Castleford tonight, and then they've got Wigan and St Helens. And I honestly can't see them getting anything, because Castleford might not be in the best of form, but they're making those metres. And whilst Castleford couldn't get through the Leeds defence, the effort were there, the want to do it was there. They're creating the chances, they're just not converting them. And they've got Jake Truman back, which is a big bonus for them. And in the game, Catalans against Wakefield, they just strolled through them as if they weren't there. It was a really ever-strewing performance. And, to be honest, it was haphazard at, the, at best. And Chris Chester says he was outclassed in the game. That worries me too. I applaud his honesty, but, I mean, he sounds out of his depth. We've had Daryl Powell and Simon Wolford saying in the press that the players were not showing on the field what what they were telling them in training. But Chester has gone one step further, essentially saying, yeah, they're doing what I've told them, but my plan, it was out for, it was outclassed. And I'm looking at the squad. I see nobody in that side who can pull them out of the mess. Danny Brough, I don't think he's the player he once was. He's been error prone for me. And the star man, David Fafita, it's bad news for Wakefield fans because he's been ruled out with a foot problem and he's not been named in the 19-man squad. So where are the points going to come from? They've averaged just over 14 points a game in the last five matches. It's not good enough to win games. And when you take into account how many they've conceded, over 40 in Perpignan, it really does not look good. And after the next three rounds, I'd really be surprised if they're not in the relegation zone. I'm sorry to say. Now then, the St Helens and Wigan game coaches criticised the decision not to televise the Saints Wigan game. First time in donkey's years that it's not been on. I think, as I've already said, it's it's a right decision. The relegation battle's simply more exciting. And it's no surprise that a huge chunk of this podcast, week in, week out, is about another side struggling and who will go down. The point is, in the grand scheme of things of the league, it's not that significant. And put it this way, at least it'll encourage people to get down to the totally wicked stadium. So to me, everyone's a winner. While we're on the subject of Wigan, Adrian Lamb has given the coaching role for next season and it comes at a time when Wigan are flying high. They've won the last five on the bounce. Not many teams, I think only Saints and Warrington have been on similar wins, I think. So they're going well at the moment. They're now fourth and breathing down Hull FC's neck in third. After Hull FC lost quite a few on the bounce, but they got that win against London, but it was hardly convincing. Wigan's upcoming fixtures will be a real indicator as to whether they fare well this year in the playoffs. 
And over the years, they've proven themselves to be masters of winning the big games when it really matters. But this year, I don't think they've shown that at all. If you look at the current winning run, all the wins have come against teams who are in threat of relegation. And yeah, you can only beat what's put in front of you. But they've lost all the big games this year. They've already lost to Saints twice against Warrington. They've lost all three meetings and they've still got to play them another time. They lost to Catalans on the big stage in the Camp Nou. And yeah, Wigan were in a more turbulent period. But maybe they're just not up to it in the big matches this year. They've got the remaining fixtures to show that maybe they can. And they'll be boosted by the return of Liam Farrell, who had previously been on the sidelines for several months due to injury. So he's back. And last week he made an instant impact. And sometimes players can take a little while to readjust and get back to the best form after a lengthy spell out. But not Liam Farrell. In that game against Hull KR, he made two tries. He made an assist. He made 27 tackles and made over 118 misses. That, to me, is a fantastic performance. So Saints will have to be aware of that tonight, and maybe Wigan can shock them. It's about time somebody did, just to throw a spanner in the works. Because at the moment, it's looking like a Saints walkover in the league, and in the Challenge Cup, and in the Grand Final. The advantage Wigan have, in the grand scheme of the trophies this year, is they don't have the Challenge Cup to contend with. So they'll have a couple of weeks off when Saints are in that Challenge Cup and Wigan are not. But I think Saints will have too much for them. Anyway, I've got to get off. That's it for this week's episode. I'll of course be back next week with another instalment of all the goings on in the world of Rugby League. See you next week.